Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. So it shouldn't surprise us that racialized deportation enforcement is going to translate into some kind of inequity in basic use of healthcare, even for those where the care is critical. The question is, if we really care about health equity, what are we going to do about this? I'm your host, Alan Weil. 68% of undocumented immigrants in the United States come from Mexico or Central America. As a result, deportation policies have a disproportionate effect on people of Hispanic origin. Immigration enforcement activity may influence behaviors like obtaining health care services, and the effects are felt throughout the community, not just among those who are undocumented. The relationship between immigration enforcement and health care use is the topic of today's health policy. I'm here with Abigail Friedman, an associate professor in the Yale School of Public Health. Dr. Friedman and co-author Dr. Athene Venkataramani published a paper in the July 2021 issue of Health Affairs analyzing the relationship between immigration enforcement activity and health care use, focusing on the comparison between adults of Hispanic origin and those not of Hispanic origin. While several studies document the effects of deportation enforcement on participation in social programs, Previous research on medical care access and use is largely limited to state and local case studies. Dr. Friedman's study found that aggressive deportation enforcement in the U.S. may make undocumented immigrants and those close to them reluctant to seek medical care. Dr. Friedman, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you studied the effects of deportation enforcement on health care use. So let's start with deportation. How do you measure enforcement? What does that measure even mean? In our case, what we're looking at is I-247 notices and requests. These are forms that are filed by Immigration and Customs Enforcement asking local law enforcement agencies to either inform DHS well before releasing a specific individual to give the department time to determine whether there's probable cause that the person is deportable or to hold a current inmate up to two business days longer than they would otherwise be held in order to give ICE time to come and um, take them into custody. We obtained these data from the Syracuse University Transactional Records Clearinghouse. And essentially what they tell you is the first step or one of the first steps that ICE is taking towards detaining and deporting undocumented migrants. And you can look at it over time and see, is it rising in a particular state? Is it falling? And we then matched it to data that's nationally representative on adults so that we can say for a given person in the past 12 months, what was the rate of I-247 filings per 100,000 residents in their state? So you're basically taking individual actions and aggregating them up to a measure of the, the strength or robustness of enforcement for a population at a certain time. Is that about right? Right. It's, it's basically a proxy for the degree of ICE activity that's deportation focused in a given state over time. Intuitively, the analysis was looking at whether utilization of basic health care changed differently for Hispanic versus non-Hispanic adults when the levels of deportation enforcement changed in their state. So those who study immigration talk a lot about chilling effects. It's a term that maybe not everyone is familiar with. What are chilling effects and what do we know about them? In legal speak, a chilling effect occurs when a political, social, or environmental context suppresses engagement in legally protected speech or conduct due to fear of repercussions. Now, 
I can give you an example of this from the immigration literature. There is a 2014 paper by Tara Watson that looked at immigration enforcement in the 90s and early 2000s. And she shows that there were reductions in Medicaid enrollment for citizen children when immigration enforcement went higher if the children had a mother who was a non-citizen, but not for citizen children whose mother was a citizen. So what they're showing there is that this one area of policy, immigration enforcement, was affecting uptake of a totally different benefit that the individuals were eligible for because of the status of the parent. So the critical issue here is that we make people eligible for all sorts of programs on some kind of social contract that says, if you need this, we will provide it. But then there are people who we've determined fit within that category of eligibility, but they don't come and get it disproportionately because of something else going on that might make them afraid or worried or or hesitant. Exactly. And with a chilling effect, it needs to have some kind of systemic aspect. It's not just one person. It's a group or a subgroup or a certain area of people. Okay. So we're looking at sort of the chilling effect of obtaining healthcare services associated with immigration enforcement. And you did this analysis, you mentioned the data you used on enforcement, and then you're looking at use of services. Uh, let's start talking about the findings. What do you see? What's different between people of Hispanic origin and those not of Hispanic origin? Yeah, sure. So let's get the terminology precise. It's the chilling effect of immigration enforcement on healthcare usage, right? So the thing that has a chilling effect is the outside policy or context, and then it's on a specific area. And what we did is we looked at Hispanic versus non-Hispanic populations because proportionally Hispanic populations are much more likely to be directly or indirectly affected by immigration enforcement activity. So what are we doing? We want to know, does the basic healthcare change? And the variables we have to look at that are, did you have an appointment that was routine in the past year? And did you have a regular provider, a regular source of care, a person you think of as your personal doctor or healthcare provider? in the past year. These are just very basic measures, right? They're primary care measures, but because it's primary care, it can be related to all sorts of health outcomes. The basic estimate shows that Hispanic adults in the US were more likely to show reductions in their having a regular provider and in their having had an annual checkup than non-Hispanic adults when their state showed a rise in deportation enforcement activity. And we ran this a bunch of different ways, right? So we, we took a nationally representative sample and we looked at only Hispanic adults versus non-Hispanic adults. Then we said, you know, maybe immigration enforcement activity has a differential effect on people of color, which would mean that some of the non-Hispanic adults could also have been affected. So then we looked only at Hispanic and non-Hispanic people who marked their race as white. And we still found the same result. And then we asked the other question, maybe there's differential risk because underlying um, comorbidities could be different. So we're gonna look only at diabetic adults, Hispanic versus non-Hispanic, Hispanic white versus non-Hispanic white, same implication. And that's really extremely concerning, right? We'd be worried anyway about this effect, but for diabetes, the standard of care is twice yearly interaction with a clinician. And if you're not having those appointments and your diabetes is not well managed, there can be long run substantial complications in terms of your functionality, your morbidity and mortality. You've talked about the differences. Give us a little bit more of a 
quantifiable result here because you these are numbers and statistics. So you've told us the direction. So let's let me give you a, a specific example. Let's think about California. California has about a quarter of the U.S. Hispanic population. From 2016 to 2017, California saw an increase in I-247s per 100,000 of 46. So 46 additional I-247s per 100,000 in 2017 relative to the prior year. Based on our estimates, that observed change in enforcement activity would have been associated with a 2.4% decline in having a regular medical care provider and a 1.3% decline in routine annual checkups for the state's Hispanic adults. And the reductions are on a similar magnitude if you limit it to diabetic. Okay, and you said that uh, it was more for Hispanic than for the population as a whole. Were there declines in care for the population as a whole? So that's a critical point. When we estimate this, we find statistically insignificant responses for non-Hispanic adults, which is a key check, right? Because you might be concerned about a confounder that we just didn't measure something and it's correlated with enforcement. But that confounder could only drive our results, given what we find, if it only applied to Hispanic individuals, if it varied within state in a way that was correlated with enforcement, and if it wasn't explained by national common time trends that were true in all states. So fundamentally, deportation enforcement really has no effect on the non-Hispanic population, but it has this measurable, statistically significant effect on the Hispanic population. That's the implication of the paper. Well, this is a great introduction to the topic, but I want to go a little deeper into some of the findings and some of the implications of it. And we'll do that after we take a short break. Before hitting the floors of Congress, health policy begins in the pages of Health Affairs. Stay up to date with the latest research and insights by subscribing to the leading health policy journal. Subscribers have exclusive access to health affairs research, ahead of print articles, and resource pages. Subscribe today by visiting our website at www.healthaffairs.org. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Abigail Friedman about the chilling effect associated with immigration enforcement on use of healthcare services. Before the break, we were talking about sort of the, the top level findings that there are significant effects for the Hispanic population as a whole and for diabetics in particular. Now, one thing those of us who work in healthcare have known for a long time is that uh, people of Hispanic origin have uh, lower rates of health insurance coverage than those not of Hispanic origin. This has been a, the case for a long time. So is that part of what's going on here, or were you able to sort of pull that out of the equation? I'm really glad you asked this question, and we were able to pull it out. First, we ran the analyses without controlling for insurance status, right, to get the general effect. But then we added insurance status as a covariate. And the reason we want the analysis without insurance status is there could be chilling effects on insurance, right? So we want to know what the general effect looks like. And then we want to see if the coefficient on deportation enforcement goes to zero when we control for insurance status. And it doesn't. When insurance status is separately controlled for, it tends to attenuate the point estimates, but they don't go away and they don't become statistically insignificant, which means that Insurance might mediate some of the chilling effects. It could be that the deportation activity changes insurance enrollment, but it doesn't fully explain them. So this may seem technical, but I actually want to spend a moment here because you said something I think very important at the outset of your answer, which is it could be that the chilling effect would be on insurance coverage. And so if if you only analyze this by controlling for insurance, you might actually miss an effect that's actually there. Exactly. 
So you have to really look at this. There, there's sort of two causal pathways, and you have to imagine or understand or explore both of them. One is that there's sort of this direct effect on access to care, and the other is that the chilling is on insurance, and then when you don't have insurance, you're less likely to get care. And you, you both of those are possible. And it, it actually makes a lot of sense if you look at the rest of the literature. There is evidence on chilling effects from immigration enforcement activity on things like SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and WIC, the Women, Infants, and Children's Program. So we already know that safety net care utilization or safety net benefits are responding to deportation enforcement. Why not insurance also? You know, another topic that's central in the paper is legal status. Now, the data you're working with don't tell you whether or not the respondent is uh, documented or undocumented, as I understand it. So how do you figure out whether this chilling effect is real for people who are eligible, or is it really just a decline in services for people who are ineligible because they're not, uh, they don't have documented status? Yeah, this is a really important point. So first of all, this was the key frustration, because we can't explicitly compare responses among documented versus undocumented Hispanic adults. And we know that 14% or less of the Hispanic population is undocumented in the U.S. So in the end, we do interpret our findings as applying to the general Hispanic population for two reasons. First, that's how we ran the regressions, right? We don't have data to test for heterogeneity for differential effects by documentation. So it's the interpretation that matches the analysis. But there's also a reason to think that these effects weren't driven by undocumented people alone. Our point estimates are substantive, but they're reasonably sized if they reflect changes in behavior in the general population. Those effect sizes start to become questionably large if you rescale them under the assumption that only undocumented individuals are actually changing their behavior. So, for example, in response to the California change I mentioned earlier, you would have thought there would be a 1.5 percentage point drop in Hispanic adults having a regular provider. For that effect to be driven exclusively by behavior change among undocumented Hispanic adults, the undocumented group would have had to exhibit an 11 percentage point decline in having a regular provider. But for that to be true, responses to deportation enforcement in that year would explain almost the entire gap in having a regular source of care between undocumented Hispanic individuals in California and the general Hispanic population in California based on other data. We know there are a myriad of other factors that are likely to contribute to this disparity. So it's logical to think that this finding means that deportation enforcement is more likely affecting both undocumented and documented individuals than affecting undocumented people alone. Let me just follow up on that. I think I get your point, but I wanna make sure I do. If only about one in seven of Hispanics in the U.S. are undocumented, in order for the effect sizes that you saw to be the result solely of changes in behavior among people without documentation, their changes in behavior would have to be on a scale that sort of just doesn't fit what's imaginable based on other data. I am trying to get a better handle on what those other data are so that I really do understand that it couldn't be uh, that big a change. So just go a little deeper into that for a moment. Right. So there's a paper by Ortega et al. that looks at California in particular, which is the other reason I like to use California as an example case. And they're looking at differences in healthcare access within the Latino population between U.S.-born, undocumented, and various other statuses. And so we can use their statistics to calculate the gap 
in the percent of Latino individuals generally who have a past year regular provider, have a past year um, regular checkup versus the percent of undocumented Latinos who do. So that's the gap I'm referencing. And the problem is that if you assume that undocumented people exclusively drove our results, it would require responses to deportation activity to explain almost the entirety of that gap. And that's just really unlikely. No, that's very helpful. And so uh, maybe with different data, it might be possible. I know there are various methods used to uh, estimate uh, whether someone is documented or not based on the answers to certain questions. So maybe we could get a little deeper into that question with a different data set, and maybe that'll be your next research project. It's it's tricky, right? There's been a huge debate about whether we should be asking people in large nationally representative data sets about their citizenship status. There's concerns, and I think they're very legitimate concerns, that it will affect the representativeness of the surveys. So I, I referenced the Ortega paper because they were specifically focused on this population and they were running their analysis with that in mind. Whereas if you're running a nationally representative survey, thinking about all of the take-up issues in the different subgroups is is really tricky. I would love to understand this better. I think it's important to understand this better, but we have to find a way to collect our data without making people nervous that the data collection itself is going to somehow expose them to consequences related to deportation enforcement. I mean, we could have a chilling effect on survey participation if we start doing that. Well, we certainly heard that debate uh, around the census, so it's a, a caution worth uh, heeding. Um, well, let's uh, talk about then the implications of this work. Let's take your conclusion that there is a chilling effect associated with people who are eligible for services and uh, they are reducing their healthcare use, and you included the uh, people diagnosed with diabetes who clearly need to have it not that others don't need it as well. What conclusions then do you draw from this analysis and other work that you do regarding the relationship between immigration policy and health policy? So there are two things that really stick out to me. And, and let's start with the term racialization because I use it in the paper. Racialization describes a system where subordinate social positions are assigned to people based on their ethnicity or race or religion or heritage. So it's not necessarily about race per se. But a racialized policy is a policy that affords fewer protections or more punitive consequences to groups at the lowest tiers of that hierarchy. And conceptually, the finding that the relationship between deportation enforcement and basic health care use among Hispanic adults in the U.S., not simply those who are undocumented, but is likely to extend broadly to also people who are undocumented, suggests that we have a racialized system of deportation enforcement in this country. And that's consistent with other research linking deportation enforcement to safety net program enrollment among eligible citizen children of undocumented mothers, which I mentioned earlier. Now, taking that observation, and then recognizing the fact that while we treat policy domains as separate, be it health, immigration, education, or labor, those areas aren't independent. We have decades of research on social determinants of health telling us that we should expect effects across these policy domains, right? So it shouldn't surprise us that racialized deportation enforcement is going to translate into some kind of inequity in basic use of health care, even for those where the care is critical, like diabetics. The question is, if we really care about health equity, what are we going to do about this? Well, why don't you answer your own question? Um, is there anything on the health side or is there any role for the health sector that at least rhetorically is very focused on equity right now 
to say um, maybe there's some role the health sector can play in offsetting some of this uh, harm? I wish I had the answer to that question. Of course, I mean, you'll find people who say that the solution is universal coverage, because if we didn't have to check people's insurance, we wouldn't necessarily have to link back in the same way. But that doesn't necessarily solve the problem, right? There is a purely ethical argument here that health inequities are fundamentally unfair if they stem from structural disparities in social determinants of health. For example, the fact that there are racial or ethnic differences in access to clean water, safe and secure housing, quality education in this country. So it's a purely ethical moral argument that that would make the inequities unfair. But as we've seen with COVID-19, there's an economic case too, which is that health inequities have incredibly large spillover effects. Just look at transmission of COVID, look at costs from the opioid epidemic, or even simply intergenerational effect of parents' mental health on their children's outcomes. So reducing these health inequities, it's not just a question of where do we stand morally, it's also an economic question. We can't afford this level of health inequity. So it's a problem that we need to think about, but we can't think about it alone. Well, and I think you've made the case for those in the health sector having potentially uh, more attention to immigration policy if you care about the health of the population and you're seeing effects from a domain that maybe isn't your core, maybe it's time to think about moving outside of your core. And that uh, that's what part of what you've done in this work. Well, Dr. Friedman, it's been great uh, talking to you. It's a pleasure to be able to go a little deeper into the paper, and we're uh, pleased to have been able to publish it. Uh, thanks for being my guest on a Health Policy. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.